When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, Los Angeles? How you doing? It's me, your host, Casey Diaz of the Shot Color Podcast. Hey, uh, I ain't mad at Los Angeles. It's all right. I mean, the Rams won, but it's still Raider up in here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> hey, uh, today's going to be really cool. I got one of our, our guests back, a uh, very good friend of mine, Eba Naya, um, if you are a follower of the Shot Collar podcast, you'll uh, go back to one of the episodes where uh, it's called uh, One Robbery Too Many. And uh, it's, a, it's his life story. It's his testimony. It's uh, him serving time uh, for bank robbery. And then uh, the transition from you know the, that, that type of experience to where he is at today. And uh, Abe, man, it's so good to to have you back uh, here. Thank you, sir, for having me back. I didn't know if I was going to be welcome back because uh, I only did a little bit of wino time in the federal uh, federal system. <laughs> and I was sharing with Abe. I was sharing with you uh, um, how you know I, I I re-listened to that episode, and I was here cleaning, and I, I was you know it was on the speakers and everything, and and we come to this part. Where, where, where you said, you know, and we were shampooing our carpets. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and I just started, I just lost it. And it was a great reminder <laughs> of that episode. If you haven't uh, uh, yet uh, listened to that one, start with that one and then continue on to this one because it, it is, it's awesome. And it's awesome that what, what, where you at, where you're at right now in your life, you know, we, we've, known each other for quite some time already yeah. and um you know it's it's always a blast man when when i get to hang out with you um i've been attending your church for uh <laughs> you mean you've been attending our church <laughs> i've been attending our church yeah what do you think about the new roller coaster that we just installed <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah it's, it's mega church problems up in there yeah. Well, we're trying to change. We're trying to change that paradigm of what is a mega church. You know, mega church is deemed as uh, any church that's two thousand people plus, right? Yep. And, that's it. Um, but if we don't care for the people that are in our church, then we're just drawing large crowds. Yeah, and, and I'm, I mean, I'm mainly there for the uh, bungee jumping, <laughs> the, <laughs> the rock climbing, the rock climbing that happens there. No, I'm just playing. But it's a great church. I'm enjoying uh, with my family going, attending there. Uh, met some really good friends, and uh, you know, uh, I don't know where God's gonna uh, do from that. Uh, but I know uh, <laughs> every time I, I run up, run into uh, Abe uh, on, on on the uh, church campus there, uh, it's always a fun time. Man. <laughs> and uh, the last time we met, well, no, the one previous time, I was in uh, in, in the Chow Hall there, yeah. the Chow Hall. Chow. <laughs> 
<laughs> hey, brother, you've been out of prison for a while. <laughs> that it's should be out of me. It's just called the cafe. Oh, the cafe. I was in the cafe right there, and uh, Abe comes up to me and says, uh, so what's up, man? Uh, so you joining or what? I felt like I was about to get jumped in again, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's good to have you, man. Um, I wanted to pick up where we left off. Um, you shared your time in, in federal prison, your crime, and and uh, some of the experiences that, that you, uh, you know, uh, well, you lived it. And I wanted to have you back because it, we kind of left a dangling carrot for our listeners. Uh, well, where's Abe and I now? Um, you made it out. What was the first, what were your first steps in, in, in paroling out of that federal detention center? You know, it's a good question, man. Again, thanks for having me back. Um, it's interesting to tell these stories because the stories are really, it's sort of like it's, a two, it's two sides to the coin, right? And uh, the first side of the coin is sort of like the bad stuff, the stuff that led us to uh, ending up in prison somehow for some reason, right? Um, but the other side of that coin, like if that's where the story ended, then then it's, it can be a pretty tragic story. And unfortunately, both you and I know way too many people that have a one-sided story. But I'm also thankful to know a lot of people like yourself, Casey, who have another side of their story, which is the other side of the coin. And hopefully today that's what we're able to capitalize on, right? Because the other side of the story is that there, there is redemption, right? There is a plan of restoration. And that plan had existed from the very beginning of time. I just wasn't aware of it. So when I get out of federal prison, I'm basically given, um, it was like 160 some odd dollars that I had on my books. I was given a Greyhound ticket in Bakersfield and I was given an itinerary to go from Bakersfield to get on a Greyhound, to go to downtown LA from downtown, downtown LA. There was no Uber back then. I had to take a taxi for those of you that are wondering what that is. Go ahead and Google T-A-X-I. All right. <laughs> and, um, and so I take a taxi to Hollywood and um, this is the shot caller <clears throat> podcast so I can be raw and I can be real. You can right? be raw. Yeah. So the cab driver, <clears throat> is asking me questions and I'm just answering his questions. And I just flat out told him, you know, I just got out of prison. And he says, Oh really? He says, do you want to go see naked girls? And I said, uh, nah, bro. But the truth of the matter is, is that for those years that I had been down, I had been thinking about what is it going to be like to be with a woman again? I'm answering your question of what were those first steps that you took? And Casey, yeah. I'm being honest with you. When I recollect on that truth, is that the first steps that I took is that I didn't want to go back to what I previously knew. And so as enticing as it may have been for a 21-year-old young man who didn't know Jesus, who just got out of prison, and to say, yeah, brother, take me to the promised land, the truth of the matter is that I knew that the decision I needed to make is just take me straight to the halfway house. Mm. And he did. That was the first time in a long time, Casey, that I had made a decision that I thought was based on a bigger good rather than just impulsively saying yes or no to something. And isn't it a trip? Because I had something similar happening to me. <clears throat> I was about to say, uh, man, the feds are kind of cheap, man. 160 bucks and, and a Greyhound ticket, which probably equals the same amount because we get um, in the state in Cal California, CDC gives us 200 bucks, mm. but you pay, buy your own ticket. And back then it was like 43, 46 bucks, something yeah. like that. But temptation <clears throat> is right there to meet you at that gate as yeah. you're exiting, man. And I had a similar uh, uh, incident as well. 
but so so you you say no to to I mean just right off the bat and you know you're making a good sound decision yeah. uh, it's got to make make you feel good it it did make me feel good but it felt awkward to say no to something that one I I truly did want and then two I didn't fully understand why I was saying no but I felt it in my gut that I needed to say no and I said no and uh, I'll never know what I'll never know what would have happened had I chosen that specific decision it could have been something disastrous um, I could have gotten in trouble. I could have uh, uh, um, violated and I gone right back and then finished my term because I had gotten out on a little bit of a shorter release, six months shorter release, just based on uh, behavior or rather not being caught for the behavior yeah. um, <laughs> of being in prison. But, um, but nonetheless, that was sort of like the, the first major decision for me. Another major decision for me was ac- actually being at the halfway house. I was at a halfway house and this halfway house was co-ed. So I'm at a co-ed ha- halfway house. <laughs> You're already here, laughing at me, aren't you? Here, here we go, man. Here we go. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so I'm at a co-ed halfway house, and uh, clearly the instructions are that we are not allowed to hang out with any other girls. Like, we can talk to them in the open common area, but by no means are you allowed to go into anybody's room, flirt with anybody, hang out with anybody, let alone have any sort of relationship with anybody at this halfway house. Let me pause you there for a minute. So, wait. So when you say halfway house and it's co-ed, like the rooms are in the same exact house? Yeah, picture Melrose Place <laughs> for for a bunch of ex-federal inmates, both male and female. So are they like a, are they on the second floor and uh, No, they were just a few doors down. And they expect that parolees are going to keep their hands to themselves and not go into rooms yeah, and, well, and do all that. That is where we can sort of have a conversation about, like, okay. do we set people up for failure or for success, right? <clears throat> yeah. But I'll tell you what, man, because of my experience, what I didn't want to happen is I just didn't want to go back to my old ways. And I didn't want to go back to federal prison. Yeah. I, I, I was out. I was happy to be out. And I wanted to remain out. But nonetheless, there was this girl who at the time I was 21 years old. And she was probably, like, in her late 20s, Right. And uh, this girl was very enticing, and she invited me several times to go and spend some time with her in her living quarters. And um, to say no to her, now this was no longer a cab driver trying to entice me to go to go to a, a strip joint, but now this is an actual ex-federal inmate who understands who I am, uh, at least to the extent of the fact that I just just got out, like she did. And she wants to she wants to spend some time with me. And um, I knew what the answer needed to be, and the answer needed to be no. Now, I knew that if I said no, she's going to look at me sideways. I knew that if I said no, and then one of the other homies that was there, they were going to look at me sideways. She's, she was a good-looking girl. She's a beautiful girl. But that just wasn't my thing, Casey. Something happened. And I think what happened is two months before I actually got out, I had sort of shared my story on, um, I had spent 30 days in the shoe. I was under investigation for God knows what. And um, I'd made a commitment to God. And it was really a God that I didn't fully understand or fully know, but I'd made a commitment with God with like, if you get me out of this one, I promise to always love you, always serve you. It was like one of those prayers. <laughs> yeah, right? one of those, yeah. I kind of feel like 
I think what was happening, whether it was on a conscious level or on a subconscious level, it was, I was trying to fulfill my commitment to God in those moments. And it just, it just seemed like the right thing to do. And I'll tell you what, Casey, I, I don't regret making those decisions. Nobody really scoffed at it. I know at some point this girl, I still remember her name, but I remember this girl looking at me. She's like, are you serious? And I said, uh, I'm dead serious. And she's like, you don't want to come and hang out. And I said, I'm going to be really honest with you. I do, but I won't. Wow. And that, that takes, a, you know, you, you got to, if you're listening to this thing, um, you got to understand, you know, by nature, right? By sin nature, it's if you're not a believer, this doesn't make sense. If you're if you're not a Christian, this makes zero sense. But I think that this is where this commitment to Christ comes into play, and 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 also how the Holy Spirit is the one that's holding us back in these moments. Because by all means, I mean you you were a young Christian at this point. I don't even know if I would have been a professed Christian at this point. Okay, got More it. than a guy who had prayed a prayer. Um, <clears throat> but I'll tell you something that happened, um, something that happened similar to, to what I just described. It was another one of those moments where I had a decision to make. And um, so just a few weeks later, I end up getting a job. You have to get a job within a couple of weeks from you being married. Basically, you have to hit, you know, shoot to the pavement. Um, you have to submit X amount of resumes or applications per day. It's part of your itinerary. People have to sign off that you actually went and applied. When I say that McDonald's wouldn't even give me a job, I literally mean McDonald's <coughs> wouldn't give me a job. I'd been convicted of a federal felony. And whenever you check off that box, mm -hmm. um, people look at you sideways. And then um, they ask you questions about having been convicted of a felony. When you go to any place of employment and you're 21 years old and they're looking at you and they say, have you been convicted of a felony? You checked off the box, yes. And then they say, okay, may I ask what happened? And I say, yes. Okay, what happened? Well, I committed an unarmed bank robbery. And then all of a sudden you can just drop a pin in the room because they're staring at you. I'm 21 years old. Yeah. They see a young man before them that seems fully physically capable, seems relatively smart, relatively articulate, and yet you're checking off a box that says that you've been convicted of a felony and the fact that you committed an unarmed bank robbery. So then the next sort of part of that conversation is, okay, cool. Thank you so much for coming in today. And we'll give you a call. And you, and you just don't get a call. You just don't get a call. Yeah. But nonetheless, I ended up getting a job through a temp agency, a temp agency. They sort of help people in our situations. They don't do a whole lot of screening and uh, they sort of are responsible for vetting people to get these part-time jobs at these sort of like low-level or entry-level um, uh, jobs. And so I was conducting interviews for a, a small company in Van Nuys that would basically, I was just calling, I was in a call center, and that's where I was working. But, but here's a story that I want to share about that. So I was taking a bus to this job. This is just a few weeks after me getting out. I just got this job. It's the first time that I've had a job in a lot of years because I just got out. And it was one of those moments where I needed to make the right decision. So I get off the bus. There's a Chevron station right at this corner, okay? There's relevance to me sharing these details. I go in there. I get my coffee. I get my donut. I'm on my way out, and I'm getting ready to cross the street to go to my job. I just took a bus to Van Nuys from Hollywood. It took me about you know an hour and 45 minutes to get there using public transportation. I'm tired. I'm groggy, whatever. 
A car's pulling out of the driveway. This is uh, this is just uh, uh, days, if not a week, before Christmas. So this is December of the year 2000. You ready for this? The guy almost runs me over. Now I'm a I'm a hothead. Back <laughs> then, I was even more of a hothead. The guy almost runs me over. I jump back. I spill my coffee with the palm of my hand. I hit the 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 top of his hood and I yell and I was like. Hey, man, what are you doing? And maybe I said something else, right? But uh, for the sake of the <laughs> Shot Caller podcast, in case my children listen to this, that's what I said, all right? <laughs> so I bounce back. The guy rolls down his window, yells some explicitives at me, and he takes off. And as he's taking off, I notice he had left his wallet on the top of his vehicle, and his wallet falls. Wow. And when that happened, I thought, oh, man, this is poetic justice. <laughs> I pick up his wallet casing. And inside of his wallet is, now I can't remember, So, but it was either between $1,500 to $2,000. I want to say it was $2,000 cash. His wallet has 2K cash. Casey, my wallet had zero cash. <laughs> and in that moment, and in that moment, I thought, you know what? This is rightfully mine. I didn't do anything. I didn't steal it. This is this is rightfully mine. And I went to work across the street, and I have this wallet, and it was eating at me, Casey. And it was one of those moments where I, I, I just needed somebody to convince me. But again, at the time, I didn't have this relationship with God where I can ask God, I can trust in the empowerment of the Spirit to give me discernment to do the right thing, and so on and so forth. Yeah. But the closest thing to that is I call my mom. Hmm. I tell my mom what happened. My mom says, I think you know what the right thing is to do. Wow. So I end up calling this guy. There was a business card in there. He ended up being, he was a cook at Abe's Deli in Northridge. The irony in that, (laughs) Abe's Deli in Northridge, which is no longer there, by the way. So I end up calling, I get a hold of this guy. And here's the funny part about this story, Casey, is you would think that the guy on the other line who just found out that this guy found his wallet, you would think that his attitude would be what, Casey? Uh, grateful that somebody's calling to turn in his wallet. Awesome. I wish you can call him and tell him that today because here's what happened. Oh, man. I said, hey, man, I was calling. I found your wallet. He's like, okay, great. Thank you so much. And sure, he was expressing that. And I said, I want to make arrangements with you. But the problem is I actually am staying at a halfway house in Hollywood. And um, I w- I'm going to have to give it to my mom who lives in Mission Hills. You're going to have to get it from her. And he says, well, there better not be anything missing out of my wallet. Wow. And I said, okay, if there was something missing out of your wallet, sir, I, I wouldn't be calling you to tell you I have your wallet. Hey, listen, man, I'm trying to do the right thing. Like, Casey, I can't even express to you how much turmoil there was inside of me because I'm tr- like, I felt that I was doing the right thing, but I wasn't getting the right response. Yeah. So you're regretting that you're even making that call. Now I was like, I'm even just, I'm justifying even further. Yeah. To just hang up the phone. I hadn't given him any personal information at that point. Yeah. Just hanging up the phone and saying, I'm just keeping this money. And you know what? This guy has been a jerk about it. And I'm just going to keep the money. Yeah. But I knew that that wasn't the right thing to do. I swallowed my pride. And um, I made arrangements for him to pick up the wallet from my mom. He picks up the wallet from my mom. My mom tells me the story later on um, that day. He picks up the wallet from my mom and he counts all of the money. In front of her. In front of her. And says... Your son is lucky that he didn't steal anything from me. Wow. 
you would have thought that a guy right before Christmas would have offered up, I don't know, a $20 bill. Thank you for being on. Just something. even a thank you. Just something. Yeah. I learned a hard lesson, Casey, that doing the right thing is not always the easiest thing to do, yeah. but doing the right thing is always the best thing to do. Yep. And doing the right thing is not going to necessarily draw applause from the crowd. Sometimes doing the right thing, people are going to respond to you in wicked ways. And you know what? That doesn't, that shouldn't keep us from making the right decisions. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that, man. Those are, those are some of the, those are some of the early first steps that I, that I began to take in this faith journey, knowing that God had a much bigger purpose in my life, but it needed to begin making very, very small incremental changes one step at a time. <laughs> it reminds me of a time I was praying, uh, I was dating my wife at that time. Well, I don't, I don't know if I was dating her at that time. I think we, I was just trying to, you know, talk to her at that time. And she she was living in her parents' uh, pad. And and uh, this is back when, you know, when we just got out, <laughs> there were still payphones out there. And I would go to this 1711 uh, payphone uh, outside. Uh, I didn't have a phone. I just got out um, within months, you know. And... I was short a dime to make this, to complete this call. This is how broke I was. <laughs> and I started praying, dude. And Lord, help me find 10 cents a dime. I just need a dime to complete the call. And lo and behold, man, I know it's him giving me directions to look on the side of the curb. And I'm, I'm, I don't know if it had rained before or what it was, but there was a little stream of water kind of thing. So I go by the curb and there's this shiny little dime, dude. Exactly what I needed to complete the call. And I remember getting so upset at God. I was like, wow. My only time I could have asked for like a million bucks, <laughs> I asked for a dime and that's what I got. So be specific, be specific yeah. is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. You know, wow, man. That but what a what a what a great lesson that you get to take in and share that, yeah. And you're absolutely right. There's times when we will run into those kind of predicaments where, or situations rather, where we do the right thing and the response is not what we were expecting. Yet, doing that right thing always trumps not doing the right thing. Yeah. You know, so, wow, man. So so you do that, and, and, and what happens after that? So it started it started to become clear to me that, and man, this is going to sound incredibly, incredibly sad and tragic. I didn't know how to make the right decisions. I'd spent most of my life making the wrong decisions. When I started making the right decisions, things were just sort of starting to fall into place. And then I thought to myself, Oh, this must be what like normal people feel because other people make right decisions. I don't make right decisions, yeah. but other people make right decisions. So then it became a thing where I sort of started to enjoy making the right decision. Now, that's not to say that I've only made the right decision in the last 20, 21 years. But man, for the most part, when it comes to making certain decisions, I, I've I have really relied on God and I see what's on the other side of honoring the Lord 
and of making the right decision. So it sort of became, a, I mean, quite literally a new lifestyle for me of making the right decisions. But I don't want to paint an inaccurate picture as if I didn't want that to keep that money. I'm telling you, I'm going on record. I wanted to keep that money so badly. I wanted to buy myself new shoes. I wanted to buy myself some new clothes. I wanted to have a nice dinner. I wanted to spend, you know, you don't have to tell me twice, dude. I can find 2,000 ways to spend this money. <laughs> but I knew that that wasn't the right decision. And I actually, here was, here was my thought, because it was right before Christmas, and I remember one of the thoughts that, con that convicted me then was, what if this person was like my dad in that they just didn't have $2,000 sitting around anywhere? What if they had been saving up money for Christmas for their children to buy them a big gift? And I was going to be the benefactor of them losing their cool at a gas station and dropping their wallet. And I would be the benefactor of uh, of uh, of this money, and it just didn't seem right. I I, I love that you, your mom stepped in and and uh, it, what did she say when when she saw you know, his response? I mean, I mean that that I, that did she say anything like uh, she did, but I won't repeat it. It was in Spanish. <laughs> And uh, if we had a, a, a beeping sensor yeah, yeah. on this podcast, you would be hitting that sensor right now if Got I translated it. and repeated it on my mom. Let's just say that she was unhappy. Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that sanitizing? That's, that's fair. Okay, that's yeah. good. Yeah, she definitely was not happy. Um, but I, I, I moved on from it, and I moved on from it pretty quickly. So, so, so let's, let's go down the street of, I mean, you're you're looking for work, and you only have a time limit to to find this job. What's your first job when 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 you're out here? Yeah, that first job was I was working for um, Interviewing Services of America (ISA). ISA. Oh, so that's the okay. Got that it. That was the job. and that's through the temp agency. That was that, through the temp agency. Because I went through a temp temp agency too. That's the only way that we could get a job yeah. back then. I mean, you know, just it's exactly what you just said. I don't think Casey. I don't think people quite understand how difficult it is for somebody who just gets out of prison. The expectation is that you would have a driver's license, but you don't have a car to take a test. Yeah. You don't have money to get to DMV. And if you didn't get those tickets or bench warrants or whatever taken care of while you were while you were down, which most of us did, right? Because that's mm -hmm. that's the protocol. Um, you don't ha so you don't have money, you don't have transportation, you don't have the means mm -hmm. to get to DMV, and yet the expectation is, well, you need to get your driver's license. Yeah. The other expectation is, well, you need to get yourself a job. Well, how do I get a job when I don't have a car? I don't have money for public transportation, mm -hmm. and I've been convicted of a felony. How do I get a job? Yeah, you're back. You come out with your back against the wall. It's really, really difficult. Right? It really is. Now, there <clears throat> are those who are going to listen to this and 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 be cynical and say or think things like this. Well, it's your fault, ain't it, buddy? I mean, you're the one that got yourself in this mess to begin with. So, what are you complaining about? So, there's a lot of truth to those statements. But that sort of condemnation doesn't move anybody forward, and it certainly doesn't. It certainly doesn't move the conversation forward of how we can actually help people segue back into mainstream society. Now, unlike many former inmates that that I have known and that I currently know, 
I actually had a mom and a dad. I actually had six other siblings who they had homes, they had jobs, and they were very supportive and they were loving. So I didn't come out to zero, although I came out with zero, I didn't come out to zero. I came out to a family that loved me, that cared for me, that supported me, that encouraged me. They bought me shoes. They bought me chonchons. They bought me (laughs) button-up shirts. They bought me socks. It was like all the basic essentials. They bought me shampoo and, you know, what we would call our commissary or our store. Like, even though I was staying at a halfway house, once I got out, I knew that I was going to have a roof over my head because my parents had already told me that I can move back into the house Um, I could borrow a car from any one of them. Um, They were willing to drive me to job interviews. They were willing to drive me to DMV. So I had all of these resources at my disposal. But Casey, you know that that's not the norm. That isn't the norm. I mean, I I walked out, um, you know, I I have one sibling. uh, um, My my mom, hard worker. uh, But we didn't have anything. I walked to zero... I walked out of there with zero uh, to zero. I mean, that, that's, and that's mainly everyone that's incarcerated. It's very the, common. Very common. It's a very minute uh, percentage of people that have both parents, have a loving family waiting for them to support them and to do all that you got to, what you just finished describing. Um, and, and so it's the recidivism, that's a big problem because these are the things that are missing and 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 I get it like there's there's um there are those folks that you know well you made your bed you now you're gonna sleep on it you did the crime don't whine now you gotta move forward and you figure it out and you know i I think that when when we both got out because we've been out for for quite some time yeah at that time there was if there was I didn't know anybody I'm, I don't know, maybe you did or or you didn't. But my thing was that there was no programs. There was nothing available for me to go, okay, um, how do I do this? How do I do that? I had to figure all that out by myself. Yeah. And, you know, pray a lot and uh, really connect with the church. Those are the steps that I took uh, to to kind of fit in, in into a society that, uh, for the most part, probably didn't even want me out. You know, uh, at the time, I think things are starting to change. Uh, there's more anti-recidivism programs uh, for the state and for fe- federal uh, ex-offenders, uh, returning citizens. I mean, I, I work with quite a quite a bit of them, uh, and I, I see that this is a a stepping stone for those that are coming out now. But it's taken this this amount of time for those programs to kind of set in. Yeah. Um, so how, how do you, how are, how are you liking your first job? I mean, you know, you're, you're doing interviews. How does that working out for you? Cause well, I mean, you're fresh out. I'll tell you what, man is uh, I began to excel and I was so hungry, Casey, that I was so willing to do anything that was asked of me. And I wanted to do it with excellence I knew, even though I was only 21 years old at the time, and even though I was immature, but I was, I was intelligent enough and, and emotionally 
self-aware enough to understand that if I could prove myself to the right people, that I could have a chance at this life. So quickly, you know, this podcast is called The Shot Caller. When you're in prison and there's a shot caller, you know who that vato is. And you know what you're going to say and what you're not going to say. You know what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. If you act a knucklehead, it's your number. If you act like, if you don't act like a knucklehead, like you got a brain on you, you're going to go places. So somewhere along the lines, whether you lived in a gang life, I didn't, but you did, Casey, or whether you went to prison, state prison or federal prison, you and I have this uncanny ability to walk into a room and to be able to know who's who and what's what. Well, the same is true because I think we carry that anywhere that we go, right? Yep. So I knew at my job, okay, this is my supervisor. This person over here to my right, she's their number one producer. This girl was making 800 million you know, and a half phone calls per day, and <laughs> she was like their top producer. <clears throat> so you know who I befriended? That lady. The top producer. Yep. You know who else I befriended? Was my direct supervisor. And I knew that those were the two people that I needed to prove myself to because if I proved myself to their top producing girl and our supervisor, I knew that I was going to have a shot. And so I just, I literally told homegirl, hey, teach me your ways. I will be your grasshopper. And she thought it was funny. <laughs> who, who humbles himself and just goes yeah. before that? But I knew, now if I'm being honest, I was being a little bit coercive. I was being a little bit manipulative, yeah. right? But there was this other part of me that just really wanted to excel. And so that's what I did. And uh, I learned from her. I would listen to her phone calls. And I'm like, dang, this girl's good. And so um, so all of a sudden, man, I started climbing up them charts. Was it commission-based or was it hourly? It was hourly. Um, but uh, you can get better hours and more hours. You would get a better schedule and you would get more, more of those hours. Um, the more uh, of these surveys that you were able to conduct. And then eventually, if you got even better at that, you would supervise other people um, at conducting their interviews. But I wasn't there long enough to completely climb that ladder. But I was there definitely long enough to make an impression on these folks. <laughs> this is going to be good. What was that hourly rate that you were getting? Ooh, snaps. <laughs> um, I could tell you what my next job was, but I think I was at... I know it was just under $7 an hour. I want to say it was like six seventy-five an hour. Dang, bro. You were getting paid. Oh, brother. I was taking it to the bank. Paid, bro. My first job was four seventy-five. There you go. Man. Yeah. 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 That, that, that's a, you know, wow, man. Yeah. But it felt good, right? Because it's, you work for it. You, 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 you didn't hustle somebody. You worked for it. It, it was, a, it, it felt good because it's something that you put your, your blood, sweat and tears sort of kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. And it was honest work. Yeah. And here's the thing. Here's the other thing that people don't know. It's important is although I was working for it and although I was quote unquote, I was earning it. The federal government also said, Hey buddy, you owe restitution. Oh, no. so my wages were being garnished. And this is, this is what I mean is I don't know that people fully understand how difficult it is. Like <clears throat> I'm not paying for an apartment cause I'm living at my parents' house at this point. Right. As I'm transitioning out of the, uh, the half house. house. But like, how would I be able to live somewhere? Mm. How, like, 
I don't remember exactly what I was living off of, but but let's say it was a hundred dollars a week. Let's just say, and that was a lot, by the way. That, that yeah. I don't think it was a hundred dollars a week. It was probably closer to like sixty to seventy. How do you live off of a hundred dollars a week? How? You can't feed yourself, transportation, clothe yourself. I mean, how? It's yeah. virtually impossible. The second job that I had, I was there temporarily. The second job that I had was um, I, I worked for the uh, County of Los Angeles. Yep, that's right. The County of Los Angeles through a temp agency for in-home social services. And my job was to go to downtown LA off of Adams and Grand. And I would input time cards for those that were servicing somebody in their family um, there's a social service called in-home social services. So let's say your abuelita lived with you and you were caring for her and you were her primary caretaker. There's you a get program. A check. Yeah. yeah, you get a check. Somebody has to clock those hours. Somebody has to input those hours for the county. <clears throat> well, I was one of many people that was inputting a, stacks and stacks of time cards into a computer database. Wow. Uh, it's important. It's important, in my opinion, in terms of sharing my story, because I met a woman who was in charge of that entire tier. And she saw something different in me. And one day she called me into her office and I was scared, dude, because like she's in charge and I thought I was going to get fired. And I didn't know why, but I thought I was going to get fired. I was scared. Hmm. She closes the door and she says, um, Abraham, tell me your story. I says, what do you mean? And she says, you don't belong here. And I says, what do you mean? She was looking at the other folks, and this is not to put any of the other folks down that were working there, but to her, I stood out. So I said, <clears throat> there's a lot of things that I've experienced in my life that I'm embarrassed to admit, and um, I, I just don't know how much to share with you. And she says, you don't have to be ashamed. Tell me. Just tell me your story. So I, to I told her my story. And this lady just started crying. Wow. She says, you know, my father was an alcoholic too. <clears throat> she told me that um, she knew people who had been in prison. I don't remember if it was a relative or a friend, but she, 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 she basically, she humanized me in that moment. And um, she said, if you ever need anything from me, like if you need a letter of recommendation, will you let me know? And I said, okay. I wow. said, you know what? You know what would help me is I heard that there's a position like this at another office closer to my house in Chatsworth. She says, do you want to transfer there? And I said, that would be great. And she put in for me to be transferred and I got transferred. Wow, man. That's super cool, man. So now I'm working at this Chatsworth office. And again, just identifying who's who and what's what. Yeah. And people start asking me, social workers start asking me, who are you? <clears throat> Why are you here? And how come you don't work for the county? Why are you hired in through a temp agency? And the sad answer is because I'd been convicted of a felony. And it was through that 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 contract ran out. And when that contract ran out, I didn't know what I was going to do, Casey. I'd only had these two temporary jobs. Um, they were through a temp agency. Now I needed to go, quote unquote, and find a real job. So I went to go see my ninth grade calligraphy teacher, Mr. Steve Siegel, over at Kennedy High School. I told the old man uh, what I'd been up to. He had written me while I was down in prison. And um, he said to me, Abe, I'm going to try and find you a job. And the very next day, he leaves a message with my mom for me to give him a call. And I give him a call. And he says, my best friend owns a business in Van Nuys. 
and it's an interior restoration business. You don't need to sell yourself. You don't need to convince them of anything. Just don't mess up. And that's how I got the job in Van Nuys where you and I met. Wow. I was about to ask you, too. How'd you get to, uh, to, to Dashes? Yeah. Wow, man. That is awesome, man. I, I love stories like this, man, because, you know, when you, I, I think it has, it has a lot to, I was just talking to my wife earlier about, you know, obedience to God. And, and when we take that step into to just doing what God wants you to do, um, it, I, I always compare God to like a master chess player. Right, he moves these pieces in such a way that it's always going to be a win situation. Now, there'll be challenges, there'll be you know obstacles in our way at times, and moments, and struggles, and troubles, and everything else. However, when we have settled it in our heart that we're going to obey God, these things start to take place. I don't know how many times I could look back at my own life. And at the lives of other friends of mine, that when we we do that, good things start to happen somehow. Yeah, and, and it's you know it doesn't happen right away. I don't know how long from that point to from the day that you stepped out of uh, uh, the detention center to to your first day at Dashes. I don't know the the, the span of of time there, but five months. Five months. But I know that I, I know how it feels to lose a job, and you're on parole, or or you know in your in your case uh, a contract expires, and that desperation starts to set in really quick. How am I going to make this happen? I need to be gainfully employed. It has to be legit. How do I do that? And you have this record behind you that says all kinds of bad things about you. And they're not hearing, you know, the public isn't hearing, well, you know, I changed, I, I, I've done this, I, uh, I'm a Christian now. That, they're not hearing that. They don't, they don't care to hear that. They want the best candidate for that job. And so here you are, and then what? Church, <clears throat> Shepherd Church, was very instrumental in all of this. Because it was through the teaching from the pulpit and it was through a community of loving believers that I was embraced. The one thing that my family provided for me was housing, was uh, financial resources, were meals. But the one thing that my family couldn't provide for me was to repair and to restore all of what was broken inside. Because in order for that to happen... I knew that it could only be an act of God. And so I'm thankful to be a part of my church for the last 21 years. I'm thankful to have a pastor who believes in a God of second and third and fourth and fifth chances. I'm thankful that the gospel of Jesus is a gospel of redemption and restoration for all those that are so far off that that Jesus gives sight to the blind, that he allows for the lame to walk, that he is the great physician, but we're trying to convince ourselves that we're not sick. Mm. He's the one that goes and seeks that which was lost, but we're trying to convince ourselves that 
we're not, that we've already been found. He's the one that wants to spend time with us at the well and offer us a different type of water that we're accustomed to, a type of water where we won't thirst again, the type of water that will become a spring life in our lives. It's a different life. And I'm thankful that there's a community at Shepherd Church and small groups of communities at Shepherd Church that will take people in like me and care for us. Listen to our stories and say, wow, I remember my first small group leader, Hector Castillo, telling me, he used to call me Abe the Babe, and he goes, Abe the Babe, <laughs> I can't wait to see what God does in your life and how he uses his story. He was the first Christian that I had ever, quote unquote, shared my testimony with. Wow. And we cried over dinner, and I was so embarrassed, and I was so ashamed, Casey, of all the things that I'd experienced in my life. Like the fact that I could tell you and I could be on a podcast and share how I'd spend time in federal prison and the things that led up to it and the heartache and the pain that came with growing up in a tumultuous home with an alcoholic father. Like that's so much easier for me to articulate and to say now without tears. Not that it doesn't hurt or it's no, it's no longer painful. But God has just done something so transformative to remind me that the life that I was living was never the life that he intended for me to live. These are the cards that I had been dealt in this life. But at the end of the day, I had a choice at one point. At that point for me was at the age of 21. I had a choice to decide whether or not I was going to put my faith and my trust in Jesus or not. And I chose to put my faith and my trust in Jesus. And regardless of what anybody said, I knew that that was the right choice. Until this very day, man, I am more convinced than ever before that that was the, that was the most important choice that I've ever made in my entire life. And I will never, ever regret making that choice. Amen. So, so you're working, and this is how we meet you're, you're we're on the same block right around i mean literally around the corner from each other and we meet and everything um, you know what were you married at that time i don't think you were were you yeah i was married or you were when we met were you already married yeah i got out oh okay in november of 2000 <clears throat> okay and then february valentine's day of 2001 which was just a few days ago mm-hmm. right was um 21 years ago uh desi and i started dating and then September of that year of 2001, September 22nd of 2001, 11 days after the September 11th attacks, we got married. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we've been married for 20 years. This will be our 21-year anniversary. Wow, congratulations. Man. Yeah, brother. That's a, that's, man, that's a feat. Yeah. You know, uh, some of you that uh, uh, have just gotten married and you're in your honeymoon stage, you know, and, and I hate calling it that. Uh, I mean, we, we call it that for a reason, right? Because yeah. the first, what, one, two, three years in marriage it's a honeymoon stage you know you're three years if you're lucky yeah three years if you're lucky and then you know bam you know uh things start to happen and and um well we 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 learn through that and we stick to the the vows and the commitment that we made at that altar before a pastor and 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 it's well till one of you dies i mean that's just how it is um so you're married you start having kids. How many kids do you have? Uh, three of them. I'm Mexican, so I'm halfway there. Right <laughs> 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 Look, 
but but times have changed, yeah. right? Yeah. Times have changed. I mean, you know, we got cable now. Yeah. So therefore, <laughs> there's a shortage of Hispanics in families. Yeah, I've I mean, got three children. I mean, at this point, all, all kidding aside, all just aside, it's uh, I've got a 15 year old, um, I've got a 13 year old, and I've got a 10 year old. Wow. So Desiree and I were married for almost five years before we had children. Wow. Yeah. Now was that you planned it like that, or it was just God? Well, till um, when I say we planned it. We planned it. God allowed it, is what I'll say. Got it. But that was our intention, and, and and God was okay apparently with our intention. Well, that's pretty cool though, because then you you live just the two of you for five years. That's that's pretty cool actually, though, man. It was it was really neat. The sort of getting to know each other. Yeah. Even we'd grown up and we'd known each other since we were kids, but getting to know each other, you know, our our highs and lows, what made us tick, being able to do a little bit of traveling. Um, Basically, being able to do whatever we wanted to do without anybody's permission, yeah, uh, without having to pack a diaper bag, or the other side of it is asking mom and dad, "Hey, can can I go out? And I'll, we're going to go to the mall, and then we'll be back by like eight p.m." <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how old are you at this at this time? When twenty one years old, engaged, twenty two years old, married. Okay. Yeah, married. I got married at the age of twenty two. Twenty two. Wow, that's fairly young fairly young yeah fairly young and of course at the age of 22 you have the entire world figured out so oh, yeah yeah you know there's everything that, there's that going for you <laughs> <clears throat> but um being a part of a church community again is really what solidified our marriage because uh the marriage as you can imagine it, it was it was tumultuous in the beginning yeah like think about it all the stuff that i've shared up until this point between last podcast and this one like desiree married that guy mm-hmm Think about the emotional, the psychological, um, the spiritual, the physical toll that life had taken on me for 21 years of my life. Yeah. You know, for the listeners out there, you know, there's a passage in the Bible in um, um, uh, in 2 Corinthians 5. Um, it says, therefore, you're a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. And that is true, but unfortunately, too often we take that out of context as if like when we give our lives to Christ that like overnight everything just magically changes which is not the case and you, and you know this Casey mm-hmm. it's just a new identity yeah. that you are now identifying with but it's going to be a lifelong journey of transformational holy spirit power that in, these incremental changes and this this metamorphosis of who we were to who we're becoming, it's a lifelong journey, right? Absolutely. So Desiree marries a guy who just got out of federal prison, who grew up in an alcoholic home, who grew up in a home where whoever yelled the loudest usually won the argument, and that's the guy that she marries. Now let me ask you, because this is interesting, um, <laughs> When we have this type of background, you know, as ex ex convicts, uh, and you're about to, you know, propose to a young lady, um, how did you present yourself? Did you present yourself to to her dad? How was that? Because that's you know, you know, he's gonna have questions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> as a dad of uh, of daughters. I got questions for for the for the dude that ends up, you know, uh, you know, trying to propose to my to my daughters. How was that 
like? Well, here, here's what I had going for me. What I had going for me is that I had known my wife and her family for years before I went to prison. Oh, okay. So I wasn't a cold turkey coming off the streets or yeah. rolling, uh, approaching them about Desiree. Um, it's somebody that they knew. It's somebody they had known. And I had previously had a relationship with her parents and with her, with her sisters, with her family. So I wasn't a stranger to them. But nonetheless, there still is a funny story about that conversation because the truth of the matter is, is that this kid who they knew was wild and crazy who did go to prison and they were excited about him not being in prison anymore is now out of prison. And all. It's one thing to know me. It's another thing for me to marry their daughter. Yeah. So we approach her parents and we sit them down and we tell them that, number one, we're dating. And number two, we want to get married. <laughs> so my father-in-law, just about, God rest his soul, he, he passed away a year ago. He gets up and he walks outside to go have a cigarette because he's not too happy about the news. Oh, man. My mother-in-law, who's now my mother-in-law, and gosh, I hope mom listens to this because this is fantastic. I love telling <laughs> this part of the story. She looks at me, Casey, and uh-huh. she says, what do you mean? And I said, well, Yolanda, I love I love Desiree. And she says, wait, you mean you like her? And I said, uh, yeah, I, I like her, but but no, I mean, I, I love her. I want to marry her. Oh, so you really like her? Uh, yeah, I, I really like her. Yeah, but you don't love her, though. You like her, right? And I'm thinking, like, why is this lady trying to convince yeah, yeah. me that I don't love this girl? But I think she was trying to convince herself that I wasn't in love with this girl. Yeah. So uh, dad comes in from the backyard after smoking a frajo, right? And he says, you know what? Screw this. Let's just go to Vegas and you guys get married. What? That's what he says. No. Oh, 100%. That's hilarious. And Desiree and I look at each other and we're like, no, no, no. We're not doing that. Like, <laughs> We're going to meet with a pastor at our church. We're yeah, going to yeah. take some premarital classes. We had done some of that legwork already. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had looked into it already. Okay. So now he's surprised that we're not eloping to get married, that, that we're a part of a church, that we talk to a pastor, that we're going <laughs> to do some premarital. And um, it took a little while for Desiree's family to fully accept the realities that she was going to marry her childhood friend, especially given my past and the things that I'd experienced. But um, for the most part, I think it's worked out. I think it's worked out pretty well. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's, it's 20, 21 years. I mean, two decades. Yeah, yeah, two Already decades. stacked up, you know. Yeah. yeah, you're going places. Yeah, yeah, we're, you know, we're going places. <laughs> I don't mean to make light of divorce, um, but, like, one of the things that we don't, Desiree and I made a commitment many, many years ago, like, divorce is not an option for us, right? We need to honor the Lord and honor our marriage. And yeah. if we honor the Lord and honor our marriage, then d- divorce w- wouldn't be an option because we're honoring the Lord and honoring our marriage. So... From time to time, when we get into an argument, not that we ever argue, <laughs> we argue all the time, um, but, but when we have an argument and um, the kids, you know, they're now 15, 13, and 10, and they grew up in our home, and, I, you know, we don't shy away from a good banter back and forth. Yeah. And then, um, so I jokingly told the kids recently, I said, yeah, mom and dad, we've been divorced since this morning. And then one of my kids is like, yeah, right. You guys will never get divorced. I said, no, 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 really. We haven't talked for like about three and a half hours. And, and I just don't know what we're going to do. 
Yeah. And my kids just laugh about it because they know inevitably that at the yeah. end of the day, regardless You're of what mom talk. and dad go through, we're always going to reconcile. That is yeah. our mission. That is what we feel God calling us to. Um, but yeah, for the last two decades, it's been it's been a pretty neat process. And, and I think it's so important um, that we keep it real when it comes to marriage, right? Uh, especially on a platform, uh, whether we're pastors or teachers or whatever we are. Or authors or, or podcast directors <laughs> or CEOs of sign companies. Yeah, yeah, yeah I get it. <laughs> I think you, you're you're hilarious. <laughs> I think keeping it real, yeah. You know, I, I haven't uh, been in certain uh, you know circles of billionaires or anything like that. I, okay, I, I mean, you. I'm not in that level. Yeah, <laughs> but we'll get you there soon, buddy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but um, you know, you, you you, I think we do so much harm when we paint marriage as this theatrical uh, thing where we don't want to share. Uh, that there is arguments, that there is, you know, rebuttals, that there is, you know, some friction there from time to time. And, and, and you know, I, 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 I can't stand when, when someone says, well, you know, I, I can't remember the last time I got, you know, into an argument with my wife. It's just unrealistic. And it paints a poor picture of what real marriage really looks like. I think the, the, the victories that we have and we learn from the most is when we're in conflict with each other and we work together through this this thing called marriage, life. And we know, I love what you said, you know, it's not an option. It it just isn't. You know, and, and I don't know how many people I've run across where, you know, and, and not to shame, you know, if, if you're a listener and you've gone through divorce, I don't know your story uh, um, you know, you know exactly what you were in, uh, and and why, whatever the case that may be. But I think that for the ones that and that have been married, man, just be honest and keep it real. And, and you know, it, I think pride has a lot to do with mm. a lot of the divorce uh, in the land, I agree. I agree. you know, in the, in the church. You know, I can't speak for the world. The world does what the world does. But for the church, I think a lot has to do with pride and, and not admitted, admitting our wrongs and our own mistakes and trying to fix that, you know, through Christ and, and repairing our marriage. I mean, I'm, you know, with me and my wife, I we fight and bicker about the dumbest things at times, you know? And, uh, I mean, that's just, you know, <laughs> my kid, put it this way, man. And uh, we don't have like a, I don't know if you are like this, but uh, uh, for some reason I'm, I'm not, we're not like when we're out on the town, we, we we're not very, uh, affectionate toward, toward yeah. each other. Yeah. That's just how we are. Um, and so the other day we're at, at at my kid's school, and one of my daughters is with us and my son. And my wife kind of reaches out to hold my hand, so we're holding hands and we're walking, and that should be like a normal thing, right? Yeah. And I could hear my daughter in the back, "What in the world?" <laughs> and my wife turns around, and she's like, "What?" <laughs> and she's like, "Are you guys holding hands?" That's funny, <laughs> you know. But but that's just. Our relationship, and it's you know, it's it's not that I don't love I love holding her hand. It's just for some reason this is where 
uh, you know, uh, maybe it's a bad habit to have. And we're working through those things. But but that is what real marriage is. And you're 21, in, 21 years in, three kids, uh, they're going to school. I see your your stuff on, on social media, man. Uh, and and I love see, I love watching. There's certain people that I like clicking on their under you know stories or or yeah. uh, their social media stuff, you're one of them because I, I it's just I see a lot of you know besides the taco posts that you post a, <laughs> a lot of. <laughs> besides I mean, my Instagram handle is <laughs> al pastor al pastor uh, for the non uh, Spanish speaking crowd. That is a certain kind of meat that goes in a taco. That's right. And uh, if you pronounce it in... Some of the most delicious, succulent, briny... Oh, my gosh. Crispy pork marinade. Dang. Yeah. Say it, bro. Sing it, bro. Hey, brother, you want to go have some tacos after... (laughs) That's what I was about to say. We're doing this. (laughs) We're doing this. But, you know, here you are, man. But I love clicking on your stuff because I know I'm either going to see church stuff, I'm going to see family stuff, and I'm gonna see tacos, yeah, lots of those, you know. But but this is why I, I I love how you do life, man, and I love the success that that you have. I love that you're a family man, mm-hmm. that you're a Christian leader, and and, and this is you, bro. Like the, I, I, when I look at success, I look at the success of somebody that's had hardship in their past, you know, uh, uh, such as you have, and and you, man. Through Christ, you have done a lot. Amen to that, dude. And and and, and I know that you're going to continue to do so much more. You know, uh, uh, I see you re- trying to recruit me into Shepherd. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's a big feat, bro. <laughs> but I love it, man, and I'm enjoying my time there. Uh, you know, um, what God has, I don't know. Uh, I'm all in whatever He says. I'm yeah. all in. You know, and and we were actually just so you know. Uh, Pastor Dudley, uh, we're gonna have him over here as well. Yeah, already we're green. We're gonna have to bring him over here. Yeah, already. He gave me the green light. I just had to figure out the dates, but um, you know, I love that he's 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 not pandering. He's telling it like it is, straight out of the Bible. And I, man, I I love that man. Any pastor that could come up there and and then just lay it out. And speak from God's word. The other thing that I notice, I love when he comes up there with a Bible. Man, that you know, some might say, "Oh, well, you know, it's an iPad, it's an all of this." And I'm an old school dude. Yeah, you know, I I I think the, there's nothing that can replace a a Bible, an actual Bible, a tangible Bible in the hand. Uh, you know, you, you don't need to charge it; uh, it charges you. Mm. Uh, that's a big thing, you know. And, and and you get to there, you become one with that Bible, man. And it's just something about it. Uh, but here you are, twenty one years in your marriage, man. Where do you see yourself down the line? Yeah. Well, next year I'm going to have a junior in high school. Mm. I'm going to have a freshman in high school. And I'm going to have a little girl who's transitioning into middle school. Wow. And to say that out loud is surreal to me because I still remember these babies like it was yesterday, man. 
First of all, I appreciate your your words of encouragement. The key word in everything you said was through Christ. Through Christ. Man, I look back at my life and I look at my current situation with my life. And Casey, I'm so, so thankful and I'm so, so blessed and I'm so honored to be alive today. But I don't deserve any of this, man. I, I really don't. This is not... This is not false humility. This is not, this is a heart of thankfulness and gratitude that the Lord has allowed us to wake up today and to banter back and forth, to laugh with one another, um, to come here, to be able to share and to proclaim the name of Jesus and to exalt him above any name. Like, that's a gift. And uh, the simplicity, and a friend of mine prayed some, uh, just a couple of years ago. He prayed, and in his prayer, he was praying for our small group, and in his prayer, he started his prayer by thanking the Lord for the socks that were on his feet. Hmm. He said that, that he said, if I know, Jesus, that you love me so much that if I was the last person on this earth, that the sun would rise, and that um, that the sun would rise, and uh, that there would be a sunset just for me because you love me, is what he said in his prayer. I'll never forget that prayer. Wow. And, and it's a reminder that this life is a life of adventure. It's a life of mission because God has freed us to live a life of adventure and a life of mission. He created us in his image and in his likeness so that we would be a reflection of who he is to a dying world so that we could produce that that um, um, so that we could produce that kingdom fruit that that the spirit wants to that it is really not our production of the fruit of the spirit but rather we're the conduits that the fruit of the spirit he is able to produce through us of of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self control and you know in in any sort of counseling situation that I've been in and. And uh, I, I jokingly tell husbands and I tell wives and I'm like, look, I tell the wives, I, I've never had a husband come into my office and say, hey, my 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 wife is too loving or my mm-hmm. wife is is too fo- like she's too joyful. I don't know what to do, pastor. Uh, my wife is too self-controlled or she's too kind and, or I've never had a wife come into my office and say, oh, my husband is too gentle, <laughs> you know, so. So this life, man, is really a life of adventure. It's a life of mission. Yeah. So I appreciate what you're saying, and I, I certainly don't take it for granted. I, I'm so thankful for, again, um, our church leadership. I'm so thankful for my family, who's been so supportive of me for so many years. They believe, and you know, they may not all be submitted to the lordship of Jesus, but they all believe that I'm that I'm on the right track and that I'm doing the right things. And the fact that I get to have any sort of leadership influence, it's like my sixth grade teacher, Miss Barris used to tell me, Abe, you're a natural-born leader. Mm. You're a natural-born leader. But Casey, I didn't know what that meant. Yeah. My ninth-grade teacher, uh, ninth grade teacher, Mr. Sego, <clears throat> that I told you that got me this job, he, he would tell me the same things, man. But I didn't know what that meant. And I know now that I unashamedly, whether you put a microphone in front of me or you put two people in front of me or you put a homeless man in front of me or you put a, a girl who's working the streets in front of me, you put a drug dealer in front of me, you know, you put a billionaire in front of me. And I tell you, Casey, I will preach Jesus until the wheels fall off. Amen. Because at the end of the day, we're all created in God's image and in God's likeness. And our role as ambassadors of Jesus is for people to know that. And how do they know that? Unless we're willing to tell them. Yeah. 
And that's my life, man. That's my mission. Through that, I enjoy tacos, right? (laughs) Through that, I enjoy hanging out with people. Through that, I enjoy relationships because at the end of the day, God created us for community. And I don't remember if we talked about this last last podcast, but if we didn't, I'll I'll share this. This will be my shameless plug for living in community. And and I am a small group pastor after all. But um, when you commit a crime... Society removes you from society. I'm sorry. Society removes you from from them, and they isolate you in behind prison walls. Yeah. Then within prison walls, I want you to think about this, right? Then within prison walls, if you commit another crime or if you get in trouble within prison walls, where do they send you to? The hole. The hole. Right. So now they're segregating you and isolating you further. So. The first level of isolation is away from society behind prison walls. The second level of isolation is they'll throw you in the hole. But even within a hole, within a shoe system, there's still two-man cells within shoe systems. If you get even in more trouble in a two-man cell, then what do they do to you, Casey? Single-man cell. Single-man cell. Further isolating you. Now um, Now you're three steps isolated from another human being. And if you don't get right while you are in that complete isolation, 23 hours a day, 20, sometimes 24 hours a day, if you're, if, 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 uh, if you've really complete got in trouble, lockdown, yep. complete lockdown, there are more and more studies that we don't have time to get into of the psychosis that takes place, the mental breakdown that takes place. Somehow our society, we have allowed And we have encouraged and we have accepted that this is how we are going to punish somebody who commits crimes. The irony is that God created us for community where in Genesis 2, he says that it's not good for man to be alone. Now we take that passage and we say, oh, he's talking about marriage, but I don't think Moses is just talking about marriage in Genesis 2. The idea that man is not created to live alone. Um, yeah, that applies to marriage, but then what you're saying is that everybody should be married if that's what that passage means. Really what the passage is saying is that God created us for a community. Yeah. God himself, if you think about him theologically, himself is a living, breathing community, a perfect community of a father, son, and Holy Spirit. Triune, yeah. It's a triune community that exemplifies for us what a community in its perfect health and origin, how that community functions. Is there a contradiction within that community? Nope. Is there conflict within that community? Nope. Is there, are they the perfect complementary to one another within that community? Yep. Absolutely. He's the perfect example. It's not good for man to be alone. Where you and I come from, Casey, society has said, whether they realize it or not, the institution of prison, the institution of isolation, is we're going against the very mandate that God created. It's no wonder it is the cruelest form of punishment. Why is it the why is it the cruelest form of punishment? Because it's not good for man to be alone. And more than anybody, you've experienced that, Casey. So when I think about you, when I think about your story, I called you crying after I read your book. Even though I'd known you for years and I read your book and I called you crying after having read your book because I couldn't help but to see this little boy that was perfectly created by God in his image and in his likeness who had a, God had a plan and a purpose for you and you went sideways. You, you were dealt cards that no little boy should have ever been dealt. 
You were put in a place where no human being should ever be put. And you've experienced things in your life that no human being should ever experience. And I couldn't help but to think of the father that I know, the business owner that I know, the husband that I know, the leader that I know, and the fact that God had a much bigger purpose for your life. But this, this life, this culture, this society, this is why Jesus said that we are called to be in this world, but we're not of this world, Casey. And to see your life of redemption and restoration, what God is doing right now, even in this moment in your life, is I'm in absolute, I'm in absolute awe of how magnificent, how wonderful Jesus is. And so I just want to say, man, as we sort of land this plane, how proud I am of you, the work that you are doing, the liaison that you've become um, between those who have experienced incarceration, those on the other side of the law who have incarcerated people, and then um, those church leaders and sort of pushing the, the envelope, pushing the conversation of what can we do to make things better? Because at the end of the day, and this is where my shameless plug comes in, is that at the end of the day, we weren't created for isolation, man. We were created for community. This is why we're better together. We must be surrounded by other believers. We must be surrounded in Christ-centered communities that are going to support, encourage, love, resource, and pray for us throughout our spiritual journeys. I want to, uh, the plane's landing. I, I, I'll plug in what happens at these life groups at church. Because these are the, this, is, this is important for you. If you're in the Los Angeles area, in the San Fernando Valley, uh, um, in Santa Clarita, is another uh, um, shepherd church as well, right? Um, how do these people get involved? What goes on in these programs? I, I want I want that to be so clear because you're right. These small groups is what makes all the difference in life. You're not going to be sitting with Pastor Dudley. Uh, or with your, you know, if you're a, in a big church, even if you're in a small church, these are only men that that are being used by God, and it's very and their and their time is very hard pressed. So the chance of you sitting with uh, the the upper uh, leadership of any church is very low. But this is why these life groups and these small uh, community groups are so effective in building up character and life building blocks for success in our Christian faith. How, how do they get plugged into this? Yeah. Um, how, how you get plugged in is, uh, you know, you go to you know, shepherdchurch.com slash life groups, right? You go to life groups, lifegroups.org. And what these life groups are, we call them life groups. It's a small group, right? That are made up of eight to 12 people. Uh, we've uh, I've categorized them. We have men's groups. We have women's groups. We have co-ed groups. We've got um, married groups. Um, we have young adult groups ages 18 to 25. We have young professional uh, groups ages 25 to, to 35, right? But the unique part about what we do at our church specifically is all of our small groups go through the same curriculum that we produce in-house. It's sermon-based. Now, what I mean by sermon-based is it's really biblically-based because the sermon is based on the Bible. But what I mean by it, it's sermon-based is we go through a series, and right now we're about to enter into a five-week series on what, what Christian baptism is, right? And so we've produced five lessons, video lessons, about seven, seven minutes each. We've produced uh, five uh, Bible study lessons and then some experiential components of some journaling that goes along with it, uh, a, a daily or weekly Bible reading plan that goes along with it. 
And so we provide that curriculum for every one of our, of our small group leaders or life group leaders. So those that sign up for a life group attend and they too have uh, access to those resources. You watch the videos and then you discuss the questions and then the leader follows up with the person. That's sort of the, that's the package. Okay. That's the philosophy. But what happens naturally, some stuff, there needs to be some intention, but what happens naturally is now you've created a rhythm. Now you've created um, this new rhythm when it comes to your spiritual growth because you've created a rhythm of, I'm not, I'm not just going to go to church on the weekend, but then now I'm going to attend a life group. And I'm not just going to attend a life group. I'm actually going to read the Bible. I'm not just going to read the Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm not just going to pray and go over these study questions to become spiritually smarter, right? Yeah. But then I'm going to have some fellowship. I'm going to have some relationships. I'm going to build some relationships. The natural byproducts is that we begin to be, we feel supported, we feel cared for. It's like the old Cheers, um, the old Cheers song where everybody knows your name, right? <laughs> yeah, he's not on the worship team, so don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying out next week. I'm trying out next week. So what happens is I love, uh, one of the pastors on the staff, Pastor Sean, says, man, you know, what I love about Life Groups is Life Groups is a place where somebody knows your name, where somebody has your number, and where somebody knows your needs. Mm. Because we weren't created to live this life alone. That's right. We must be surrounded by other people. And uh, last night we had this huge life group leader dinner where we gathered. We had um, just about 260 leaders last night that we fed. And just uh, yesterday, Pastor Dudley and I received this letter from a woman who's not a leader, but she attended a life group. And I'm going to end what I have to say with sharing this story about this email. And it just came, it just came in my inbox yesterday. She basically goes on to explain she's an actress. She was on the East Coast. She's been she's been acting. Um, she hadn't gotten plugged into a life group. She finally said, you know, I don't know if I can commit to this life group. I'm going to sign up for it anyway. So she signed up. They were, they've been meeting on Zoom now for a couple of years. What she didn't know is a year after joining this online community, it was a Zoom group. Think about this. Mm. It was a Zoom group. After a year after joining this um, online community, she got diagnosed with breast cancer. Wow. Not only was she diagnosed with breast cancer, she went through treatment. Not only did she go through chemo, then she went through a full mastectomy. And not only did she go through a full mastectomy, but here's what happened is that these women that were in this group, none of them she knew. She hadn't even met most of them in person. This is all during Zoom. These women created a meal planning for her. These women would take her to her doctor's appointments. Some of these women would go and spend days with her because she's a single woman. They would spend days with her four days at a time at her house, cleaning, making meals for her, and even changing out her bandages. Wow. Wow is right. Wow is right. She wrote us this email to Dudley and I saying, this life group literally has saved my life. Were there components of Bible study? Absolutely. Were there components of prayer? Absolutely. Were there components of laughter? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, when life happened to her and she was diagnosed with cancer and she had nobody to care for her, this group of very unique ladies, because not everybody's wired this way either, yeah. but this is such a beautiful testimony of the work that Jesus has done in these ladies' hearts that they were the hands and feet and have been the hands and feet of Jesus to this woman. And she felt compelled to write us a letter to simply thank us for having these small group communities because they're making a difference in people's lives. And that is the gospel, not just being proclaimed, 
but actually the gospel reality is being lived out in the context of a small group community. Wow, man. It's so important. I, I love this discussion, man. Thank you so much, uh, uh, Abe, man, for being here, for being part of this uh, podcast. If you're out there, man, again, if you're in the San Fernando Valley, uh, Shepherd uh, Church, uh, man, you, you just go check it out. If you don't have a home church, if you're looking for a church, go check it out. It's very easy. You know, it's off of the 118, boom, uh, and and you're there. Uh, Tampa exit or I think it's Porter Ranch exit. In between both of those. In yeah. between the, both of those. Uh, you can't miss it. You'll see it there off of the freeway. Uh, come visit. Come join. Come be part of Shepherd Church. Um, thank you again, uh, Abe. And for those of you that uh, um, I, I just want to say, you know, I know that we we partake of your drive home or to for, to work, whatever it is. Uh, I just want to say thank you for you, the listener. And if you want to support this podcast, it's very easy. Uh, just go to kcds.net. Uh, on there, there's a podcast button. You click on that, and it'll lead you to a three-way uh, support uh, you know category there. You get to choose and become a monthly sponsor of this podcast. Again, uh, thank you for joining. And you know I'm going to say it because I always do. It's how we've closed this show from the beginning. Let's do this. Let's do this. Keep Jesus first, Los Angeles. Until the next time. And we're going to have some good, good, some other uh, good guests coming at you. Um, I have um, a a very cool uh, uh, guest coming through. Um, Man, I, I, I can't tell you just yet, but it is a captain of the Rampart, LAPD Rampart Station back in my days. And uh, we're going to go out for some lunch. And then I'm going to see if I can lock it in. So be praying for us. Thank you so much, LA. Till next time.